Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Green. With the major auctions returning to New York City next week, it'll be an interesting barometer to gauge where the contemporary art market currently sits and really how robust it is at the moment. The headline of these auctions, in my opinion, is certainly Andy Warhol's Blue Marilyn, which carries a hefty presale estimate of $200 million. It'll go up for auction at Christie's on May 9th, and has the chance to be the most expensive artwork sold at auction of all time, surpassing Leonardo da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi, which if you recall sold for about $450 million in 2017. But despite that, it does feel like the Warhol is relatively under the radar compared to when the da Vinci was sold, and there were lines out the door to see that painting in person. I'm not sure if that'll be the case for the Warhol. There's several fascinating storylines behind this incredible Warhol painting, so we wanted to explore them further in this week's episode. So we're joined by Richard Polsky, author, dealer, and founder of Richard Polsky Art Authentication. Richard is also the author of several books on Andy Warhol, including I Bought Andy Warhol and I Sold Andy Warhol Too Soon. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Richard. Thanks so much for listening. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, good to see you, Adam. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure having you on. So before we get into the sales price and why this Warhol is such a valuable painting, can you tell us more about the Marilyn Monroe 40-inch portrait? There are five of them, each in a different color. Why are these so important, not only in Warhol's practice, but also in post-war art in general? Well, okay, you know, that's, of, of course, the big question. Why this painting? Why 200 million? Is it worth it? What's really going to happen? And so on. Short answer to this is, yes, it's worth it, and it's worth more. And I'll tell you why. In art history, there are only a handful of icons, so to speak, where people point to it and they say, wow. This is emblematic of why I love art. This is emblematic of why Andy Warhol matters, okay? When I think of Warhol, I might think of the 32 Campbell soup cans, which is at MoMA right now. I probably would also think of the Gold Maryland, which is also at MoMA. The Gold Maryland, to me, is the single most beautiful painting Andy ever painted in terms of just, you know, just being surely ravishing. There's, there's a charisma to that painting. The stories behind all this are many, and they're, they're pretty cool. But the point to all this is, if you can't own the gold Maryland, which you obviously can't, it's hanging in a museum, what's the next best thing? And the next best thing is any one of these five shot Marylands. There's something about the Marylands. You can't figure out, figure out what it is can't quite put your finger on it, that just connects. You look at it and suddenly you're basking in the aura of everything that Warhol was about. Celebrity, uh, death and disaster, the future, um, you know, tabloid culture that we ended up living in. Everything's there. And then there's the physical attributes of the painting. It's just a great looking object. You just look at it and you go, oh my God, 
That's, that's just beautiful. The strange thing here is that these paintings, like you said earlier, it's not that they flew beneath the radar. It's just, there's so few of them and they've appeared so rarely on the market that it's now, it's an event when someone brings one onto the market and it's, it's, it's gonna be for sale. I mean, you can actually buy it if you have enough money. That's unbelievable because the greatest things in the world you can't buy. I can't think of one thing you can buy that's great. I mean, where it's like the best in class, okay? You know, you talk about the Salvatore Mundi. There's so many questions about its authenticity. You don't even know if it's a Da Vinci or it's probably, you know, in my opinion, chances are it was probably one of his students or something, but I'm not a Da Vinci expert. That's just a guess, okay? But here, there's no doubt this Warhol's genuine. And the fact that there's the, this great story behind it is what really matters. Um, how much would you like me to go into in terms of the history of the Maryland paintings, Adam? Yeah, that would be great if you could go into the history of these paintings. And also, you called it a shot, Marilyn. That's a really bizarre and incredible aspect of all of this that I don't think those who aren't incredibly familiar with the Warhol market are aware of why it's called a shot, Marilyn, and the backstory behind that. So if you could share that, that would be great. So if you go back to square one, the original Warhol Marilyns were done in 1962. All right, these are the small ones, the 20 by 16 inch paintings, most of which were named after Lifesaver flavors. You know, there was like cherry, cherry Marilyn, lemon Marilyn, and so on. Um, and the story's fantastic because most people assume Andy had his first show in New York. He didn't. He had a second show in New York. The first show was at the Ferris Gallery in Los Angeles with Irving Blum. Those were the original 32 suit cans. While all of this is happening, Ivan Karp, who is Leo Castelli's director, was pleading with Leo to represent Andy. And as most people probably know by now, because this is a story that's been told you know, ad nauseum, was that Leo turned Andy down originally. He claimed the work looked too much like Roy Lichtenstein's work, which, you know, an artist they were already representing. But Karp, to his credit, insisted, no, there are, there are real differences here. Totally different artists. Sure, you can lump, together, lump them together, call them pop artists, you know, and their, their concerns are similar. But no, no, different animals, different things. Anyway, Leo just, you know, he went along with it. He, um, how do I put it? You know, he bought a few paintings from Andy at the studio just to be a good guy. And in the meantime, Ivan's doing whatever he can to promote Andy. Uh, Andy desperately wanted to show with Costello. He wanted to be with the big boys. He wanted to be with Jasper Johns and Rauschenberg and Frank Stella. He, he knew this was the key to, to the art market. He was very savvy as a businessman. If you show at the best gallery, you're going to be taken the most seriously and get the most money for your work. He knew all this. He got it instinctively. All right. So anyway, in the meantime, a woman named Eleanor Ward, who owned something called the Stable Gallery, which was named after horse stables. They were originally police horse stables in New York. She renovated it and turned it into a gallery. Through a mutual friend, they were introduced, and Eleanor went with it. She gave him a show. I think there was a cancellation in her schedule, and she plugged them in. And boy, was she glad she did because this was the show of the first Maryland's and they it caused a sensation they actually sold I believe they all sold they were $250 and uh Philip Johnson bought the gold Maryland 
which I believe was $1,200, had a friendship, I believe, with Alfred Barr, immediately agreed to donate it. I don't think he even took delivery on it, all right? So now, Castelli and Carp actually went to the opening, all right? And they're like, gee, I don't know. <laughs> you know, Ivan knew all along the work was good. I think Castelli was mostly impressed by all the red dots on the wall. He's like, hmm, <laughs> you know? And it reached a point where there was a second show at the stable, which was the famous show at Brillo Boxes. And at that point, Carp and, you know, and Castelli were convinced, like, we're doing this. And Andy ended up at Castelli, all right. If we fast forward a few years to the 40-inch Maryland's, the story that's been told was that Andy made five of these 40-inch paintings, different colors, same image, always that same, you know, cropping from a black and white film still from the Marilyn Monroe movie Niagara, right? He does, does these larger paintings and he had four of them, not five, but four of the five leaning against the wall. And a woman who was an alleged performance artist named Dorothy Podber walked in and she had her purse and you know, she's talking to Andy and he didn't give it much thought. And she says, do you mind if I shoot him? And Andy assumed she meant, you know, with a camera, I'm going to take photographs of him. And of course she opens her purse, <laughs> small handgun, pow. And her aim was true. I mean, it was literally a perfect shot right between the eyes of the Maryland paintings. And you can imagine Merle being a little startled. <laughs> and then he was probably very angry that, you know, she ruined these perfectly good paintings. I mean, they weren't worth what they are now, but this is the guy's work. He's not pleased, okay? So the paintings were restored to different degrees. Some look better than others. I think... There's one where you can see a spot, the hole has been, you know, it's been patched, but it was never painted over. And in others, they were. There was one painting that escaped the shoe. This is the turquoise, Marilyn. And this is the one that is, was owned by Stefan Edlis, the big collector in Chicago, who years ago, I can give you the exact date if you want it, sold it for an alleged 80 million in a deal brokered by Larry Gagosian to the investor, Stephen Cohn who, as we know, now owns the New York Mets. I mean, you know, these are all colorful people who are doing big, big things, all right? So anyway, okay, so you got the shop paintings and all that. And they did trade hands. One of the stories was that Peter Brandt, the well-known Warhol collector, bought one for $5,000. And people were saying, oh, that was nothing. And he pointed out, well, no, that was the cost of a new Cadillac back then. Or something. You know, it wasn't nothing. And, it, it, you know, I mean, there were all sorts of stories. Then years later, around 1989, I think, the Red Marilyn, the shot red painting, came up to auction, possibly at Sotheby's. And it was owned by a guy named Max Polevsky, who was a computer magnet in the 80s when there barely was such a thing. It sold for around $4 million and people were blown away. Uh, the guy who bought it was a Japanese collector. And as you know, at the, at the end of the 80s, the Japanese were dominating the art market. Uh, their real estate market collapsed, which is how they were borrowing money off their buildings to buy expensive art. And the guy had to sell the painting. And it was sold to a member of the Niarchos family, the Greek shipbuilding family named Philip, who I believe still owns it to this day. Um, actually, the guy who bought it, the Japanese collector, took a loss on it. I think he, I think it sold for like three and a half, 3.6 million, something like that. All right. So anyway, you know, it just keeps going and going and going. If you keep moving forward, 
In the early 90s, um, the famous Cy Newhouse of Condé Nast, Women's Vanity Fair, and so on, uh, he had the opportunity to bid on the Orange Maryland. The Orange Maryland brought 17 million. And again, Gagosian's in the middle of it. He was waving his pen, bidding on Newhouse's behalf. And I was in the audience that night. And it was a funny story because my dad was alive then and he came to the auction. And before, you know, the estimate, I think it might've been four to 6 million. And what it, he asked what I thought it would bring. And I think I said like 15 million or something. And it brought 17. And he was sort of impressed. He goes, God, you're pretty close. And I go, yeah, you know, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> it was just a lucky guess, you know. But that aside, the Orange Maryland had a, an interesting history because a number of the Marylands and Liz's and Jackie's were owned by a guy named Leon Croucher, who was one of the three greatest collectors of pop art back in the day. The other great collectors were probably Harry Abrams, who owned Harry, you know, Abrams books, maybe a guy named Richard Brown Baker, and of course, Robert and Ethel Skull, those were the great collectors. Leon Croucher was the best of the group, in my opinion, had the best taste, had the best paintings. He was, the guy was a genius. Anyway, I knew his kid, Fred, because I was living in the Bay Area, we were around the same size. And I remember calling Fred, I go, dude, I could believe it, this painting your dad once owned brought 17 million. And there was a silence. He goes, I go, Fred, what are you doing? He goes, I'm about to stick my head in the oven and turn the gas on. <laughs> and I go, oh God, don't do that, no, no. But it was, it was, it, I mean, there's just too many of these stories. I mean, I can go on and on. Uh, just trying to think out loud. Well, the Orange Maryland, all right, was that was the one that was bought by uh, the investor, uh, Kenneth Griffith. The story there was that Newhouse died. Uh, the Tobias Meyer, who's an excellent auctioneer at Sotheby's, became a private dealer. The Newhouse family enlisted him to broker the collection and make a private deal on Orange, Maryland. We don't know what Kenneth Griffin paid. Some people say 200 million. I've heard 240, I've heard 250. What's the difference? It's a lot of money. I'm going with 200 million because I think that's why Christie's used that number to set a floor on the painting. So that's, you know, that's, you know, a long-winded summary of some of these paintings and what's been happening with them. And because there are five of these Warhols, you have these multiple histories and multiple transactions of these works. So I think it makes a lot of sense how all of these things have led up to where we are now with one coming to auction with a $200 million presale estimate, and maybe it'll do even more. So for a work at this price level, who would you say are some potential buyers? This is just such, that's such a hard question. I mean, it's a valid question. I mean, I've been following the story and this painting has received an inordinate amount of press and people are asking who can afford a painting like this. I mean, there's a lot of talk. It'll bring 500 million and break the record of the Da Vinci. All right, that's a nice round number, half a billion dollars. Who knows? But I, I think they're, they're certainly right on when it comes to that estimate. I would go with that. I think you could do that. So then you get into who has a half a billion dollars to spend on a painting. I, I'm not enough of an insider to know who has that kind of money to spend. A guess would be, you know, it could be a country, as they say, where a government, like people talk about Qatar and, you know, if you have oil wealth, it's just, you just pump a few more barrels of oil. You've got your, you know, 500 million. I mean, and the, the point to this is, no, I don't know who will buy it. I mean, if you're a big billionaire, 
beginner, does it matter? I mean, I'll give you an example. All right. You probably know this, but in a recent sale, the Ed Ruscha painting radio came up. Remember that? And it brought it like an outrageous $50 million. I mean, it's a first rate painting. I wouldn't call it one of the greatest Ruscha's. I'd call it an A painting, but it's not an A plus painting. There are better paintings. I can name them. All right. That aside, the story was that Jeff Bezos bought it. Okay. And the story I heard, which was that his girlfriend was advising him on this and saying, you know, like, honey, we really should get this painting. And he's like, okay. And I know he did talk to someone in the art world who advised him. I don't know who it was. And he basically asked, is it worth, you know, is this a great painting? Is it worth going all out to buy it? You know, and I guess he got the thumbs up and he bought it. Now you think about it, what's $50 million to one of the world's wealthiest people, okay? He could also obviously afford, you know, the Maryland painting if he wanted to. But the point I'm trying to make is he bought it and I'm not convinced he bought it because he was a great art lover or he needed the investment. I think his girlfriend really wanted him to get the painting. And it's like, you know, there's a psychology to this. It's like, hey, my girlfriend wants it. I've made all this money, I'm ultra successful. What's the good of having all this money if I can't have a moment and make someone happy who I love? So of course he kept his padlock and he got it and made her happy, went home a winner, went home a hero. God knows what happened that evening, you know, between them. <laughs> he made her happy. Well, there's, this is true to a lesser degree in the art world. I've been to a lot of auctions over the years where I've seen people keep bidding past their limit because their spouse wanted it. It didn't make sense. They were overpaid, but they didn't care. You know, you see this happen over and over again. So I, I don't know who's going to buy it. I, I, I have no idea. Yeah, I think a lot of the same names that we saw popping up as potential buyers or bidders for the Da Vinci will be the same ones who Christie's will be calling and tempting them to bid on this Warhol. And this whole thing, it does remind me a little bit of the Jeff Koons balloon dogs in that they're only a handful, each in different in a different color, just like the Maryland paintings. And when you acquire one, it really is a trophy piece and you're really joining a very exclusive group of high-end collectors. Okay, okay. Now, it's interesting you mentioned that because I have a little different viewpoint on that. All right. Um, I was talking... Do you know Nate Freeman? He's one of your colleagues. He's yeah, he's been a guest here many times. They just did a piece on this. And he, you know, it was very nice of him to call me and quote me on it. And my comment to him is it's gone, this sort of painting has gone beyond a mere trophy property. The trophy market is what's been pushing the art world since 2008. Everyone's like, I want the best of the best. I don't care what it costs, I'll pay. But this is a whole different level now. Whoever buys this will be eternally uh, famous. And by that, I mean, you know, in the days of old, uh, the, the pharaohs, you know, who built the pyramids and all these magnificent tombs, it was all about immortality. Whoever buys this painting will be an art world immortal. They will live on. I mean, when you think about it, remember when the Basquiat painting brought 110 million, mm -hmm. the Japanese collector, I cannot pronounce his name, bought it. Yep. Who, knew who, who knew who this guy was until he bought it? He was just another ultra successful businessman. When you think about it, who knew who Eli Broad was? He was well known in, man, you know, in home building and insurance, and he was super successful. But if he didn't amass this amazing trove of art, 
we wouldn't know who this guy is unless we were in those businesses. The same could be said for Don Fisher, who owned The Gap. You go to SF MoMA, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, everything's Don Fisher. Fisher and Broad bought immortality. My hypothesis here is whoever buys, you know, the shot Sage Blue Maryland, they're, they're, they've bought, you know, immortality, for lack of a better word. It's above just a trophy. We've been speaking about potential buyers for a while here, but what do we know about the seller of this painting up for auction? Why would someone want to sell one of these Warhol Marylands, and why is it up for auction now? Well, I, I only met Thomas Amon, whose family is selling it once. It's kind of a funny story. This probably would have been, I'm guessing, the early 90s. I was in New York. I was at Dia, the one in Chelsea. And I think it was a Robert Gober show. I may have my dates a little off. And it was almost closing time. It was like 10 to 5. And I just managed to slip in at the last minute. I think they closed at 5. And I noticed there was one other couple there and me and the whole thing. And I looked closely and I recognized Thomas Amon. Thomas Amon, who's deceased now, was this ultra elegant Swiss dealer. His mentor was Bruno Bischofberger, who was Europe's biggest Warhol dealer. So Amon was, of course, a big Warhol fan. And this guy was just impeccably dressed. He had, it was the winter, I remember. He had a beautiful overcoat on. I mean, I was envious. I go, man, that's a great looking coat. So then I noticed the woman he's with, and it turns out to be Bianca Jagger. I mean, like, you know, <laughs> this is Thomas Amon and Bianca Jagger. You know, I knew what she looked like, yeah. you know. And I couldn't resist, so I go up to him, but I introduce myself. Oh, Mr. Roman, I'm Richard Polsky. I'm a big fan. You know, I love, you know, you have a great gallery. I like your taste. And she was really miffed because she was used to being the one. That to me. Oh, Bianca, you know, what a beauty, you know, Mick, you know. So she walks away in a huff, you know, and he smiles at me and he was so happy. He was the one who was recognized. And yeah. like people in Hawaii. And we talked for about five minutes and he's telling me a little about his involvement with Warhol. All of a sudden, Bianca comes back. She had two leather gloves. She slaps him in the face with the gloves and goes, we have to go now. <laughs> he jumps and he goes, you know, he gives me that look like, what can I say? You know, oh he walks away. <laughs> I mean, only in the art world did these things happen. So anyway, so it's Thomas Amon and his sister, Doris. When Thomas died, Doris took over the gallery. And they showed, you know, blue chip, the best of the best. She's passed away. So now the family is selling it. And the story is they have a foundation. All the money will go to their foundation. I do not know what the foundation does, but you assume it's a good cause. So those are the sellers. <laughs> I, I love that story. Thank you for sharing that. So we really appreciate you joining us, Richard, and sharing your expertise on Warhol with us. I think we now have a much better understanding about this body of work and really the lead up to this particular painting coming to auction and how the market views the importance of this painting. And so I remember we would always have you on the podcast to make predictions and you aren't afraid to do so. So what is your expert prediction for what this painting will sell for? Um, I do believe it will break the record for the Da Vinci. You know, I hate to be boring and say 500 million because everyone's saying the same thing, but it's it's a nice round number. It sounds about right. I think it's a better painting than the Da Vinci. I think it's a more important painting and it's an opportunity if you have that kind of money to live with something that 
you know, it's a cliche to say something's great. In this case, it's not a cliche. It really is great. Well, we'll have to see if your prediction comes true. We'll all certainly be watching. And so before we let you go, Richard, you're also the founder of Richard Polsky Art Authentication. Tell us, what's the latest with the art authentication business? What's new there? Um, to keep it brief, we specialize in Warhol, as you know. Basquiat, Keith Haring, those are, we work with seven artists. Those are three of the seven. Uh, the others are Roy Lichtenstein, George O'Keefe, Jackson Pollock, and the outsider artist, Bill Trailer. Um, I will say that this, you know, there's been such a rash of interest right now in Warhol because of the Netflix series and the Maryland painting. Now you have the Basquiat show that the Basquiat sisters have organized about his life. So this is pretty good. I mean, this is what stirs up things. There's a tremendous amount of interest in Warhol and Basquiat right now. And Keith Haring, his prices continue to rise. The more expensive the art gets, the more fakes that appear on the market. It's just how it works. So things are good. Um, we're looking into a bunch of other things that I, I may have something really big for you in the future. When I say future, a few weeks involving Andy Warhol. That's the only clue. There's, something very big is about to happen. Well, we'll definitely have to have you back on in the future once that's announced. Richard, thanks so much again. We always enjoy chatting with you. Okay, back to you. Bye-bye.